Today, there are two million descendants of French-Canadian immigrants living in New England. These are our stories. Welcome to the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. Venez tous jeunes fils et garçons, je vais vous raconter l'histoire de notre immigration ici au USA, de grands aventuriers de pays étrangers. This is the French Canadian Legacy Podcast. I am Jesse Martineau. Now, today's guest is an expert on the French spoken by Franco-Americans. This is a topic that's super, super interesting. Our guest today is Cynthia Fox, an associate professor of French studies at the University of Albany. Her research has focused on French linguistics, sociolinguistics, and applied French linguistics. I'm glad I was able to get through that. Cynthia, welcome to the French-Canadian Legacy. Thanks for having me. Now, let's get your story first, if you don't mind. Where are you from, and how did you come to study... Franco-American. Well, it's sort of convoluted. I'm actually from, <laughs> I'm from Buffalo, and uh, I have no French, no real French background. I, I, I may have some, but we don't really know too much about where that is. It's a little bit far, far back. But anyway, I went on an exchange program when I was in high school to France, awesome. and it um, made me, you know, love the language and really learn how to speak it in ways that, you know, when I was studying it in school, I wasn't really learning. So I, I just learned French. And then um, I ended up in graduate school at Indiana University and in doing a graduate degree in French linguistics. I was given the opportunity to use materials that had been um, put together in Quebec City. It was a huge corpus of spoken French. And I was so naive, I didn't really realize that Quebec French was going to be so very different from the French that I had. <laughs> That's awesome. I mean, I knew it was going to be different, but I didn't really, I, I really didn't get it. And sure. um, so when I was first there, I was so surprised when people had asked me where I was from, because I had spent all this time in France trying to kind of blend in. And then, right. you know, suddenly I don't blend in anymore. Sure. So um, anyway, um it was a complete discovery to me. There was this whole North American phenomenon that I'd been sort of vaguely aware of, but not really, that was familiar but unfamiliar. And I just got fascinated by it. And then I was on the job market, and there was a job at Albany. And uh, when I went for the interview, Eloise Brière, who is a Franco from um, Eastern Massachusetts, West, excuse me, Western Massachusetts, and was on the faculty, said, oh, and you know, there's there are French speakers in Cohoes, just 10 miles up the river. And that was the the next revelation yeah, to me. Yeah, sure. And I thought, well, if I get a job here, I'm going to look into this phenomenon. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> and so that's how it all started. Uh, what was amazing to me, and is still amazing to me, is that most people, and I think that's been said over and over again on your podcast, most people are really unaware, it, particularly if you're not Franco, sure. uh, are unaware of this presence. And yet, the minute you become aware of it, you realize it's everywhere. It is just everywhere. Ah, I love that. That's so cool. Now, obviously, we talked a lot about the New England Franco story here, mm -hmm. uh, but you mentioned you bring in a different kind of perspective because we haven't talked a lot about New York. Right. Is the, I mean, so is the New York story, I mean, the story we get, you know, come into, you know, giant mill towns, textile towns specifically, you know, along major rivers is, the, you know, the story we get here in New England. Very similar story, different story in, in New York. 
It's similar, and in fact, it's it is similar, um, but it's also Cohoes, which is uh, at the confluence of the uh, Mohawk and the Hudson Rivers, and, it, and like I said, it's just uh, about ten miles north of Albany. Uh, was a in you know a, a mill town, uh, Harmony Mills, a huge um, mill town, and so it's. Its history, its um, immigration is very similar to the industrial towns of sure. New England. And when you get further north, you have a much, you have immigration, but you also have just a French presence that, that predates the Industrial Revolution, you know, that because you're on the border. So it's, right, right, it's right. Also similar to what you might see in northern Maine or northern New Hampshire. Um, and in particular, there was... Um, you know, after the revolution, when when um, the people who were loyal to the United States, sorry, loyal to the British crown had to leave and go into Canada and people who were loyal to um, or supported the revolutionaries were given lands in the United States. So so you have a tract the um, in Lake Champ the Lake Champlain area that was actually given to. French speakers who had supported the American cause during the revolution. Oh, so you mentioned Cohoes. Yeah. I definitely want to talk about the, the article you wrote about Cohoes. We kind of got a preview as to why you picked that specific town. Mm -hmm. And what I think is kind of cool is you, you mentioned that in the time you went, there were no French monolingals, which I thought was interesting because I know my, my grandparents would talk about how uh, in Manchester, anyway, you could have people live their entire lives in Manchester, never learning how to speak English. They would just speak French their entire life. That, that happened to one of my, my dad's grandmother was the same thing. Lived their entire life in the Manchester area, never learned English ever. Uh, I'm wondering if maybe 60 years before that, would you have had people who just spoke French in Cohoes as well? I'm sure I'm sure you would have. I'm, I'm sure you would have. And the other thing about it is that even though uh, I said, well, you know, there are no monolingual speakers left, there were certainly people that I interviewed who whose... French skills were stronger than their English skills, you sure. know, who, who were clearly um, French was their first language, whereas some of the other speakers were very, you know, were bilingual in the sense that you couldn't really, if you didn't know that they spoke French, you wouldn't know that they spoke French because they sounded just American. Sure. One of the things you noted, which I thought was kind of cool, like uh, the Frank, a bunch of the Francophones, or most maybe the Francophones, claim they never spoke French because there wasn't really anybody to speak with anymore. Right. Yet, at the same time, they would be able to identify people that they could speak with. Now, exactly. why the why the contradiction? Well, I, 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 this is something that really um, surprised me for a, a long time, and I, I think it really has to do with well, how people as the um, domains where French was used um, shrunk so that people started using French really principally in the home or with their friends and relatives. That when um, when those people passed on, then the people who were left stopped speaking French because they because the connection wasn't there anymore. And what has always been a question to me is why when you know that there are other speakers, right? why you won't use, why you don't use French with them. And part of it, I think, has to do with just the fact that there is a really strong, um, and I found this in every community that I've done field work in, a really strong sense that you don't use French in the presence of people who don't understand it. Because, and it's 
presented as a sort of a, a rule of etiquette, sure. but I think it's also a, you know, a defense mechanism against um, prejudice, you know, prejudice that, you know, people who don't speak another language think that if you speak another language in front of them, you are talking, either talking about them, but you're also somehow un-American. Sure. So, so I think all those things sort of combine to, um, but it's, it's very, it's ironic and it's a little sad. I think it's also contributed to the idea that French is, is virtually gone and it really isn't. There are a lot of people who still speak French. Sure. Uh, I think that was one of the most, one of the most interesting things about the work I've done is how many people there are for whom French is really still a, 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 an important part of their identity and that, and that they use it. No, that's awesome. And I, what you mentioned is uh, something I've come across quite a few times, and I, I always find it really frustrating. I can remember, again, I've, I've seen it a lot. The one that sticks out is I had a couple of visitors from Quebec come down. We mm -hmm. meet up with a couple of people from the Franco-American Center. There's the five of us sitting around a table. I was the only one who didn't speak French, mm -hmm. so they felt obligated to speak English to each other, mm -hmm. it, it, despite the fact all four would have been more comfortable speaking French. French. And, uh. and no matter how often I was like, no, please, it's fine. I'm going to drink my coffee. We're going to be okay. Talk to <laughs> each other in French. But yeah, it was kind of the same kind of thing. It's like, mm -hmm. oh, one of us doesn't understand. We got to make sure to make it English. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But yeah. That's frustrating. Now, uh, one of the things that your article touches upon is the fact that the, the language lasted several generations in Cohoes yes. mm -hmm. uh, and really started to decline after like the World War II, which is, again, the story we hear a lot here in, in right. New England also. Um, so maybe you can tell us why. Why the decline then? Did the decline have to happen? Was it like an inevitable decline at that point? Well, I think there are um, a, a, a number of things that contributed to it. And what, one is that immigration had largely stopped. So um, one of the things that kept French going was the constant renewing of the population, right? Sure. That there were always people coming in who um, spoke the language. So that was one reason. Um, there was, I think, uh, um, a lot of social changes brought about by World War II, such as um, access to higher education, um, also the breakup of the Petit Canada, you know, the sure. ethnic enclaves. And I think, you know, it's not just that people moved to the suburbs. It's also that there were, you know, in a lot of the towns in New England, those places, the, the, the center of town that was where the little Canadas were, you know, underwent urban renewal projects. And so, yeah. um, and so, you know, they're kind of flattened out. So there was that. And then there was... You know, we see a lot of research now about the benefits of bilingualism, but after World War II, that was not the prevailing theory. The prevailing theory was that if you you would confuse a child, right, a gotcha. child confused and not be able to acquire their language correctly if gotcha. they were speaking some other language at home. And so that was a lot of the people that I've interviewed. That was one of the reasons they, you know, they went to school and then their teacher told, told their parents that they had to stop speaking French with them uh, because they were never going to be able to acquire English. So that comes into it. And then there's also just the whole pressure, you know, pressure on people who speak a language other than English to sure. feel that um, the sign of being an American is speaking English. 
So all of those things, I think, sort of come to a head in, at, after World War II. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Uh, one of the things you brought up there that's resonating with me big time is I think, uh, at least in Manchester, a lot of my generation uh, don't speak French because our parents were told that what you had mentioned, uh-huh. uh, you don't want to introduce the second language because that'll hurt their English down the road. Right. If they right. want to, they want to be educated. They want to go to college. Right. You know, you got to make sure that they know their English. So that right. means just have them speak English. Mm-hmm. Exactly. No, which we now know is complete garbage, of course. Right. Right. No. Yeah. No. So one of the things you did mention is uh, in the in the article, excuse me, is the borrowing of English words into mm-hmm. the Cohoes French lexicon. Maybe you could tell mm-hmm. us about that. I thought that was kind of cool. Well, so that's a, a topic. The, the whole question of the influence of English on French everywhere. It, it's, it's a topic of sensitivity in France, in, in Quebec, sure. and also among Franco-Americans. So one of the things um, that, but it, it, it's a really normal phenomenon when you're in a, uh, particularly when you're surround, you know, you're in a, English-speaking environment, right? You're surrounded by a sea of English that that's going to be a source of a way that you can renew vocabulary. Um, Sometimes it's because there's some new phenomenon that doesn't exist, you know, didn't exist back in Canada, or sometimes it's you've forgotten a word or, but it's interesting because it's not nearly as Franco-American French has often been described or as, you know, some sort of bastardized English, you know, English influenced language. So so that was one of the first things that I was interested in doing was kind of dispelling that idea. Well, actually investigating it. Is sure. it really true? Right. And, you know, no, it's not, it's not yeah. really true. Um, it's that it's just a normal phenomenon, but it's not any more prevalent. Uh, well, what actually what we found in in Cohoes was that um, the English, when people were using English words, they weren't using they weren't using the same English words. So, for example, so they weren't using the same English words. So, in other words, if you took um, if you interviewed ten people and you looked at what English words they were using, they weren't necessarily using the same English words, and that's actually sort of not a good sign. It's sort of a sign that the language isn't being used together because if you use together then you would expect oh these these are words that are just finally getting incorporated into the language right right right, yeah and um so i had a student who did um some field work up in northern vermont and and so we were able to compare kind of what was going on in cohoes with what was going on in in vermont and and there there was much more integration of the vocabulary. So it was sort of an indication that this community was using French together more than Cohoes was. You mentioned again in this article, something we hear all the time about the idea that it was a bad French, right? Like like, it was like a lesser French that they spoke, which again, still blows my mind. Again, the story, I have to tell it a hundred million times. When, you know, the French Canadian children who spoke French in the house went Mm -hmm. to high school in Manchester, they were segregated in their own half of the French class so uh-huh. that they wouldn't contaminate the proper French that was being taught to everybody else in wow. Manchester, which is I'm still absolutely nutty. Yeah. Now, from Cohoes, now I'm curious how, I mean, languages generally, from Cohoes or Manchester, Lewiston, wherever, 
was the language uh, relative to a specific region in Quebec that people came from? Can you like trace? Can you trace like the language all the way back to a specific place? Well, yeah, yes, and no. Um, yes, because um, the immigration was chain migration, and so people tended to come with their families, and um, they brought um, and to settle in places where there were other people from their community. So in in some places like Woonsocket, so I've done field work in sure. Woonsocket. Um, you know, people people that I interviewed, their grandparents had known each other, say, in Canada. Right, right, because right, yeah. they all come from the same little region. Gotcha. And so those regional differences definitely appear, you know, based on where people had come from. But some of the communities, and this is another thing, I mean, we've talked about Cohoes, but I've actually also done field work in New England and in sure. several different places in New England. And each place was really quite different. Woonsocket is very homogeneous in terms of where people came from in Canada, but it also had um, this unusual phenomenon, which was that the mayor of, governor, sorry, of, of Rhode Island, um, Potier, went to um, France and recruited industrialists to um, come to Woonsocket. So you have, in Woonsocket, you have the presence of French from France. So, you know, that kind of mixes in in, a, in an interesting way. In Gardner, Massachusetts, where I've also done some field work, speakers came first. There's a like a historical, what do you call it? it it's like a sequence of events. So first, the first there were the French Canadians, but then maybe, I, I don't I honestly can't remember exactly how many years later, but then there is an immigration coming from of Acadians. Right? Oh, gotcha, yeah. And so you've got French Canadians and Acadians together, and they didn't get along. Um, and uh, because the Acadians felt the French Canadians were, um, thought they were better than they were. Oh, and um, so there was tensions between them. And then later there was an after, and this is another thing that I hadn't, hadn't really been clear to me until I did my field work in New England, was that after World War II, there was some renewed immigration but only to very particular places. And Gardner was one of them. So there were more, more people coming from New Brunswick into Gardner after World War II. So Gardner is, is very Acadian in its, in its uh, presence now, in its, you know, it's, it's mostly Acadian. Sure. So yes, there's a lot of differences like that. No, that's awesome. No, I'd actually like May as well talk about that article, which I think is kind of cool. That your uh, your study in two thousand was it two thousand seven? The work you the work you had done. You asked three questions. You know, the first, you know, who's speaking French and why are they speaking French? The second, which we've been talking about, which I think is super super interesting, to what extent the Franco American French in New England differs from community to community, and how these relate to differences in dialects of Franco Canadian and Acadian which I think is cool, and how extended contact with English, number three, in more restricted use of French, both in terms of domain and where uh, where it is used and the frequency with which it is used, how that affected the structure of the language all in some way. Super, super interesting study. Um, and you picked eight towns, which mm -hmm. I thought was cool. Now, why did you... Uh, Van Buren, Waterville, Biddeford, Maine, Berlin, New Hampshire, Southbridge, Gardner, Mass., Bristol, Connecticut, Woonsocket, Rhode Island. Uh, maybe you can tell us, first of all, why those eight? 
Well, so um, first of all, I should say that it was a project that I did with a colleague from the University of Maine named Jane Smith, and that it was funded through the National Science Foundation. We picked those eight communities because we wanted to have, there had been no really representative sampling of Franco-American French. There just had not been, there'd been isolated studies um, and they all tended to, for example, Lewiston, there've been a couple of studies in Lewiston, there, there've been a study in Manchester. Um, so we didn't pick those places because sure. there was some data about them. Really, we were looking for a the kind of cast a wide net. Uh, we wanted to have communities that represented northern New England and southern New England. We wanted um, communities that represented um, different areas that people had immigrated from. And then we also looked for at, at statistics about what percentage of the population um, was French Canadian or Acadian. Sure. And then we also looked at what um, the the um, census figures about who speaks French. So we tried to get a a continuum, sort of 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 all of those factors. We're yeah, no, no, juggle no. all of those factors. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So for the very first question, then, um, who who was speaking French? Why were they speaking French? And did it vary depending on the geographical region of the place? Okay, so yes, so who was speaking French? They tended to be, but not exclusively, tended to be in in the southern New England communities. It tended to be people who were 50 and older. And in the northern communities, it was, they, they were, they tended to be, they were still not a lot of young, young speakers. Right. But they tended to be, they were nevertheless, on the average, younger. Um, gotcha. The average age was younger, right, um, in the north than in the south. But still, you know, the the distribution does reflect the fact that after World War II, um, people weren't really passing, you know, passing the language on. So those speakers, speakers are older, yeah. Gotcha. So you got the older speakers, and where were these speakers using the language? Well, they were using them mostly, again, mostly at home, but with and with friends and family. But in some communities, um, there were still French masses possible. Um, you could find people using the language in things like um, nursing homes and in in service kinds of um, situations where there were there were in fact, older people who might not speak anything but French or spoke little English or, you know, needed French to be able to, to uh, convey their needs. You know, there were, there were some, in some communities, there were public places where you could hear French being spoken in restaurants or, sure. um, so a lot more, honestly, more, again, more use than, than I would, than you might expect, or that you might expect based on sort of the received wisdom about, you know, Franco-American French has disappeared. Sure. Right? No, if you come shave a show on a Monday morning, I guarantee you, you're going to hear people speaking French in Manchester. Uh -huh. It happens every single time. It's awesome. Uh -huh. now, now, we've identified the fact that the language does have differences depending on on where, you know, where you are, the French that is spoken. Um, mm -hmm. 
what what are the differences? Maybe like even like from a technical side, what what would I hear differently in one city versus another? I'm curious. Well, the mo I mean, I don't know that I could really say, oh well, if you're in Moonsocket, you'll say this, and you're sure somewhere else, you'll say that. One interesting thing that I can think of as a vocabulary word is in Cohoes, when people talked about grades in school, they used the term degré, degré, premier degré, deuxième degré, and I never heard that anywhere else. People said grade or class or... So that was something that was interesting sure. to me. You would have this... Um, of course, the Acadian and the... And there are a lot of differences that 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 distinguish Acadian French from Quebec French. Um, and you would definitely hear those in Gardner, for example. So for example, if you were going to say they, let's see, they had, I'm trying to think of a good example. No, you're fine. Um, they went to school every day. They went to school in a French Canadian would say, um, ils allaient, ils allaient à l'école. But an Acadian would say, ils allions. Gotcha. Right? So a difference in how the verb is conjugated. Sure. Um, when Acadians, and, and another interesting phenomenon is when Acadians ended up in a pre- predominantly French-Canadian community, they tended to lose their Acadian features and and adopt French Canadian ones, um, and that has to do with uh, again the the sort of prestige factor of one versus the other. Sure. But um, but and but there were also I also have examples of um, people who said that I remember somebody from um, Bristol actually talking about um, his mother and that they could always tell who she was talking with on the phone because of the way she was speaking French. She was Acadian, but she could also switch and speak a more French-Canadian variety. Gotcha. Yeah. No, that's interesting. I mean, honestly, I, it never occurred to me, um, and maybe should have, that if you, someone from Gardner could go to, say, Berlin and mm-hmm. even note, even notice that there was a difference, you know, the French right. spoken there would be different than the, what they spoke in the house at home. I think that's kind of cool. So one question, well, actually, before we get to this, I do want to mention uh, something that I thought it was kind of cool, which is the continuum of French language skills you have written about, starting with mm-hmm. the, the fully fluent, but mm-hmm. the next level below that are the, what you talk about as the notorious code breakers. And I hadn't heard the term code breakers before. I've seen it a million times, but I had never, I didn't know what the term was for it. So maybe you can explain to us what, what are code breakers? Well, a code switcher, I think. Code, yes, code switcher. Yeah, Sorry. Code switcher. Yeah. So... The code switchers are people who are switch between English and French kind of um, without really, clearly without really thinking about it. So in Cohoes, there were, that was something that was striking. um, And again, this is when I was first first studying Franco-American French. But um, people would comment about um, speakers who, you know, oh, they don't know whether they're speaking French or English. Um, you know, because they're just switched back and forth all the time. And that was kind of different from another kind of other people who told me, well, you know, I, I speak French with my brother, for example. Sure. Um, you know, su- suddenly the conversation just switches to English. And they're not talking about it switching back and forth. They're saying suddenly we're just talking English. Without they're even like, a conscious decision to make the switch. 
That's right. And and that it's once they've got once they've switched to English, they're unlike it's unlikely that that what what they're saying is then we don't switch back to French. We've just gotcha. stopped speaking French. So it's a different kind of um, so actually the, the people who were switching back and forth, in some ways they were being criticized for for doing that. You know, you should you should be speaking either French or English, but don't mix them. But that's really it's really the sign of. Um, strong skills in both languages you know sure, it's absolutely. not a sign it's not a sign of bad it's a sign right. of they're so you're so good that you're you're doing it without realizing it's a it's a you have this richness that you can exploit because you know both of these languages that's so awesome uh, but i do want to touch upon the, the kind of the final two categories of the continuum i guess the passive bilinguals who kind of understand everything but don't speak mm -hmm. the french and right. the former fluent speakers who claim to have forgotten the language and i mm -hmm. thought this was super neat for me because uh most of the people of my parents generation that i come across maybe are some somewhere kind of in between where they grew up speaking french in mm -hmm. the house but they mm -hmm. haven't talked about it. They haven't talked it for years and years and years. Mm -hmm. So if you ask them today, like, do you speak French? The answer is always, you know, a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, but if they could go and they could see a, uh, a movie in French and they'd understand everything, absolutely uh -huh. everything, they would know exactly what's going on. Right. But again, they're, they're, but if you ask them if they spoke it, it would be like, nah, not really. Mm -hmm. So it, it, I'm just kind of curious, like, what, where did you come across this? What kind of impact, like, uh, what kind of experience did you have running into this kind of thing? Well, it's interesting because um, that, well, um, I, I had, I definitely had incidences where um, I can think of in Cahos one, one interview that I did with, um, it was, it, originally it was with one, one woman, but eventually her sister and her brother and his sister-in-law all were there. And so sure. they're all talking away. And the the sister-in-law was not, um, she did not contribute anything to the conversation, but it was absolutely clear she understood. She didn't contribute anything in French to the conversation. Sure. It was clear that she understood everything that was going on and she would contribute in English. So that that's a, a, a case of a what would be called a passive bilingual because she has complete complete comprehension, but doesn't seem to have any active skills. A lot of people, and not just in Cohoes, but everywhere that I've spoken with, talk about people, their brothers, their sisters, their neighbors, who used to be, who used to speak French. Sure. Uh, and who don't, who claim, that, so. I love the way you go with this. This is awesome. Yeah, who claim that they don't speak French anymore. And for a lot of those, a, a lot of the people who are describing them it's it's they don't really believe that's possible right they don't really believe they believe that they've rejected it right that they that that it was more important to them to assimilate and to reject their past than to remember their french i also have a lot of examples of people who that I've talked to who did who genuinely thought they had forgotten their French or right. didn't know it or weren't comfortable in it and then for one reason or another realized that oh wait a minute I really do I really can speak this I remember this and it's not always the same um, reason why sure. 
I remember one person saying, well, she, you know, she went to, um, she went to Quebec and, and suddenly, you know, it, it was being in that environment where it, it came back. But um, if you know the film Rêve, Absolutely, um, yeah. Waking we Up t- French? Yeah, we, we, interviewed, we interviewed Ben. He's, the, he's awesome. Okay, so in that film, there's a woman from Woonsocket, right? There's a, a long stretch in that film about how she refound her French because of her relationship with a woman from Senegal. Sure. Um, so, and wanting to communicate with her and then French being their common, common, re- you know, common language. And right. that it, and it and that it brought French back to her. So there's a lot of different. Um, so there's a sense that for many speakers that you know you you don't you can't you know if you really had it you're not going to lose it. You just have to make the effort to bring it back. And that's one of the neatest things that I have seen, which I thought it was so cool. You were talking about this because I've been with multiple people uh, oh. to Quebec who again grew up speaking it, claim to not have it anymore but we were put in a position where they had to use it because uh-huh. we were up there uh-huh. and now all of a sudden found that they could uh-huh. place in that situation. It was so neat. It was really cool to yeah. see. Yeah. But before we go, this uh-huh. has been way fun. This has been a blast. Um, there's this one hypothetical that I've heard brought up in a couple of different talks that I think you'd be the perfect person to get the opinion of. So, so here we go. <laughs> so this hypothesis uh, that I've heard, and you teach the history of the French language, so I think this would be pretty cool. You feel free to punt it if you don't have an opinion one way or another, but I think it's going to be fun. Uh, I've heard the idea that Franco-Americans were, quote, the people who missed two revolutions because they missed the French Revolution in France because uh-huh. our ancestors are already in North America. Right. And they missed the Quiet Revolution in Quebec uh-huh. because our ancestors were already in New England or New York. Mm-hmm. And the discussion point of this is that if King Louis the Sixteenth of France, Louis the Fourteenth of France, were to come uh-huh. back to life, uh-huh. he would be most comfortable hanging out at a pret-a-parler in Manchester, even more than he would be <laughs> in Quebec or in Paris, because those revolutions had significant impact on the languages that were spoken in those places. Okay, um, that's the th- that's the, the theory I've heard, and I'm very curious to hear what you would think. Well, I think that's an interesting theory. Um, I I also, I think it's interesting the way you've described it, because sometimes when I hear that, so I've heard this too, but I've heard it put as, oh, we speak the pure French. We speak... Right, 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 yeah. we, We speak pure 17th century French. Well, when it's put that way, we speak pure... 17th century French, I have to say, no, you don't, you know, <laughs> no, you don't, because language, language changes, language, what you, what you're, what you're seeing is, so, so there's a phenomenon that when a language um, moves from one place to another, um, and so the, the mother, say it moves from France to Quebec. Sure. So in France, language is going to um, move, continue to change and move in its way. And in Canada, it is too. But here's the thing. In um, France, France gets the privilege of being called the mother tongue, right? It does, yes. Right? That's, it's the base. So when things disappear from that, right, then they start getting called, we call them archaisms, 
right? Got you. Yep. Right. And so if something was disappeared in France, but re remains in Quebec French, then it's an archaism, right? And it's considered, well, you know, that's old fashioned. Sure. Right? Um, and but some things, some things get main it, anything that's maintained in French. Uh, how do I put this? It's you could say that all of those things are archaisms, right? Anything that remains, you know, not yeah. everything is lost, right? Sure, Plenty right. of things stay. So it's just only in relation to this change that some things are going to change and some things aren't. But at the same time, Quebec is innovating, right? Because they have, they're out, they're not uh, connected to France. France isn't influencing them. They're isolated and they're going to, um, they're going to develop vocabulary for things that don't exist in the, you know, in France, et cetera, et cetera. Right, so right. it is not the case that it is a, you know, that Franco-American French is 17th century French. No, it's not. On the yeah. other hand, yes, it does have, um, because, because of this phenomenon of archaisms, um, it does have conservative features, what we would consider conservative features. And those are the things that make us think you know, that this is some older form of French. Um, sure. I don't know. Does that, does that? Yeah, no, that's awesome. That, yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> I always, I'm curious now. I'm going to play the where would Louis go game. Right. Well, and, and people, the thing is that people, it, it's also a way of people kind of affirming. A lot of times you hear that, oh, well, we speak pure French. It's a positive thing, you know. Oh, that, yeah. You know, it's a positive thing. And, and, um, um, I don't know. Uh, yeah, no, I think I've seen it as like a defense almost. Yeah, as a defense. To as those who are accused of speaking the, the bad, their inferior yeah. French. Like, no, right. no, we got the, we got the right. real French. The, right. The pure, right. the true French, but, yeah. But the fact of the matter is that, you know, I guess that's the other thing. That, that the whole idea that there's something inferior about Franco-American French is just, right. you know, it's just wrong. It's just Absolutely. wrong. So, oh, that's awesome. Yeah. No, that's cool. So if people, most, we talked about a couple of your, your articles here. Now, most of this stuff is in French. If people want to follow you, be able to get your work, where can we send them? Um, well, they could contact me, I guess. Um, I'm at uh, the University at Albany. I'm Cynthia Fox, so cfox at albany.edu. Um, and I'd be happy to, I don't know, send it. Anything, <laughs> that's but, awesome. Now, uh, we, and what are what are some of the other things that perhaps you could that, that you've written about in French that we couldn't talk about here because I can't speak it yet that I've written about in French um well you know more they they tend to be articles that are more specialized perhaps more um more looking at some particular feature of French and how it's changed or how it hasn't changed um you know those kinds of things so they're more sort of for people who are language nerds I guess I love it I think it's awesome. Well, listen, yeah. So if you're curious at all about the history of French, the history uh -huh. of the language, uh, how the language changes, how it's regional differences in the French language, mm -hmm. it's all super, super fascinating. You got to follow the work of our guest today, Cynthia Fox. Cynthia, thank you so much for joining us. This has been cool. Thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed it, too. Now our fathers look at us and sigh with despair To think that everything they love we simply do not share But the spirit never dies, our culture will survive Each of us must choose how much to keep alive
Each of us must choose how much to keep alive. Special thanks to Josie Vashon for providing the music. You can find more about her at josievashon.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Mike Campbell. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at fclpodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at fclpodcast for more information about the topics discussed. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this episode.